Open your Bibles to Proverbs 1, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We'll be taking a look at here in a moment. Um, I want to thank Noah for his uh, excellent job of filling in last week while I was unable to prepare because of illness. And I can't say for certain whether or not the providence of the Holy Spirit pushed back a sermon on wisdom until the Shaw family could be here, but (laughs) the Lord does work in mysterious ways. I do uh, hope you are following along in your Proverbs reading at home. Uh, The chapters have been a blessing to me, as I hope they are to you. And as we go through this sermon series and hear the Proverbs explained and preached, and as we read through the book again in August, I suspect more of it will come to life for you, or at least that'll be my prayer. Speaking of reading the Bible, here's a question to ponder. What would the Bible look like if Adam and Eve had not sinned? We've been going through the book of Genesis. Last fall, we considered the fall of mankind into sin. What would the Bible look like if they had obeyed, if they had not fallen into sin. I think many Christians, and a disproportionate number in the Reformed and Presbyterian camps, make the mistake of summarizing all the Bible as the story of redemption. Now, to be sure, most of the Bible is the story of redemption. Most of the Bible is about how God sent his Christ to redeem fallen mankind But not all the Bible is about that. The point is made quite simply by realizing that even before the fall, before there was sin, Adam and Eve needed instruction from God. Before there was any sin, there is God teaching. You are here to rule, to have dominion, to subordinate the chaos that's left in the world, and to bring order out of it as I have done in the garden. You are here as my stewards my underlings, to take care of my creation. You are here to make families and to fill the earth with worshipers. Oh, yeah, and that reminds me. God had to add this instruction, didn't he? It's not good for the man to be alone here. Adam had to be taught that. Remember we considered when he looked at all the animals? That wasn't for God's sake. It was for Adam to learn. So we see that even before there was sin in the world, before there was a fall, we had things to learn. We had things we had to be taught. The Bible, while mostly about the redemption we have from God in Christ, is not entirely about those things. We have other teaching in there. You see, we were not created omniscient. We were created without sin. But we did not know all that God knew. We still needed to be taught. So if we didn't sin, if we didn't fall into sin, what would the Bible look like? Well, arguably, most of the New Testament wouldn't be needed because there wouldn't have been a new covenant needed. And probably most of the prophets prophets would be gone. But would we still declare the praises of God? Would we still need psalms that we could together sing? Much of the book of Psalms would still exist. Now, the laments would be gone, the imprecations would be gone, but the hymns would be there, the thanksgivings would be there. 
we would not lose those portions of the Bible, even if we had not sinned. And arguably, much of the Proverbs would still exist had we not sinned. For families would still have to figure out how to work together. The dynamics of a husband and wife relationship, of a parent-child relationship, of sibling relationships, all of these would still have to be worked out and refined and made to go. Now, they would go faster. We'd get there much faster without our sin, but there would still need to be some teaching there. So without sin, arguably the Proverbs would still exist. I can see some of you, your heads are still spinning, and you're still a little crinkly-faced there. So let me offer this. If we look at Luke 2, we see three interesting verses. Luke 2, verse 40. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And verse 62, and Jesus increased in wisdom. Now, if the one who was born sinless and who did not ever fall into sin needed to learn wisdom, needed to be taught these things, needed to grow up, in his humanity, his unfallen, untarnished humanity, still needed to be taught. If that was true of Jesus, how much more so of you and me? Surely, wisdom and growing in wisdom is not a function of the fall. It's a function of our limited creatureliness. We are not God, and therefore must be taught the ways of God. He is the one who made this life what it is, and he knows best how to live this life. Human beings need instruction from God, and not merely instruction in morality, for that's the law. How to be right with God through works, which proves to us we can't be right with God through works and points us to our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. But even more than that, we need that gap between merely being restored to God and being all that we were created to be. So with regard to morality, Jesus lived out a perfect sinless life, sinless from the get-go, sinless at the end. But with regard, and, and, and did that in his divine, in his, in his divine uh, uh, power. But in his humanity, he had to grow up as a human being and learn to be good at living in this world. We need the instruction of God. We need the wisdom of God. We need the Proverbs. And where we find God's wisdom, we find a wealth of information for living rightly in this world. So join me now in reading in Proverbs, beginning in verse 1. 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, 
the word of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Spirit of God, give us wisdom this morning. Guide us into understanding. Let us not be fools who despise instruction, but let us be your children, eager to hear your voice. Let my words be consistent with the message of your word. And if I were to say anything that is wrong, let it be immediately forgotten, so that you and your truth alone stand in our hearts and minds. We pray this for the sake of the name of Christ. Amen. These seven verses here are an introduction to the whole book of Proverbs, and as such, we're going to use them as an introduction to our sermon series in Proverbs. So this morning, we're going to look at five things, and they're actually outlined in the bulletin there, if you want to use that to follow along. Uh, I don't remember what page it's on, but the sermon notes page. The Proverbs, here in the introduction, we're going to look at five things. The Proverbs target audience. We're going to consider who they're written for. The Proverbs purpose. Why were they written? The Proverbs author, who wrote them? The Proverbs methodology, how do the Proverbs go about doing what they're going to do? And also the Proverbs motto. There is this refrain that keeps going over and over and over again throughout the Proverbs. The Proverbs target audience, the Proverbs purpose, the Proverbs author, the Proverbs methodology, and the Proverbs motto. The target audience, for whom were the Proverbs composed, collected, and compiled? Well, look at verse 4 to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now, Hebrew poetry is constructed in parallel. And that means that the author here is putting simple and youth in parallel to each other. He's basically using them to refer to the same group of people. Now, we might be offended by that, that young people are simpletons. But first of all, it doesn't use the word simpleton. It uses the word simple. And when we understand what it means to be simple, we understand why there is that parallel. So what does it mean to be simple? Well, my sister is the high and mighty queen of administration at her local school district. I don't think that's her actual job title, but, you know, you get the idea. So if I say to my sister, so what you do is sit around all day waiting to answer the phone, she's going to look at me and say, it's not that simple. My niece is training to be a nurse anesthetist. A nurse, I can't say that word. Too many S's and THs in there. Nurse anesthetist. And I say to her, well, that just means you're going to conk people on the head and knock them out. First of all, I think she'd be way too eager to do that. (laughs) But secondly, she's going to say to me, Uncle Scott, it's not that simple. To have a simple view of things is to fail to understand the complexities of what's going on in the situation. Young people haven't lived long enough to understand those complexities. That they are simple is not a function of stupidity. It's not a flaw in their character. It's not a shortcoming. It's just the reality of they can't possibly understand all the complexities of the situation because they haven't lived long enough. And the Proverbs are going to give to the simple, to the young, an understanding of those things. That there's more going on than you realize. 
Staff Sergeant Shaw is with us today. He's just 25, not exactly a wizened old gray head, but he deals all the time with privates, some of them actually older than him, make a later in life decision to join the army, and they get in the army and they decide they know how to do it. This is stupid that the army does it this way. This is such a dumb way to do it. And what does Staff Sergeant Shaw have to say? Drop and give me 50. I'm sure he'd love to say drop and give me 50. No, he says it ain't that simple. There's more going on to the army than you understand. That's what Proverbs is going to impart to us, a knowledge of the extra level of complexity, the things going on that we might not understand on our own. So simplicity is not a sin, and in fact, sometimes it's a great blessing. But it's a blessing we must outgrow if we're to live this life well. For if we always think everything is just that simple, we're going to have no end of trouble. Now, we noted in verse 4, it also says to give discretion to the youth. You know, when you watch America's Funnest, Funniest Home Videos or you get on YouTube and watch the Fail Army videos, it's never a 60-year-old who thinks that tourniquet tubing and a skateboard will allow them to leap over objects. Those Fail videos always have the youth in them for they lack the discretion to understand. Now, it's one thing to have a little fun in the backyard with some friends, but if that fun leads to permanent injury or somebody's death, then it is a major failure of living life well. When that lack of discretion leads to marrying the wrong person, taking the wrong job, incurring the wrong debt, it is a tragic mistake in life. This is why the Proverbs are going to say whoever gets sense loves himself. Whoever gets sense loves himself. Living life with wisdom is to take care of your own life. The Proverbs promise to give discretion to the young. And again, lest we fault the young for being young, we are reminded that Jesus himself had to grow in these things had to learn these things, had to acquire the skill necessary to live this life well. How could we imagine that our own young people would be otherwise? And so we have our first lesson here for parents and grandparents. We punish children for disobedience, but not for being childish. Wisdom needs to be taught. Sin needs to be taken to the cross and sacrificed with Christ. Sin needs to then be kept at bay through discipline. Sin needs to be killed in our old man. But wisdom needs to be taught and modeled and lived out in front of them so that we guide them into understanding of this life. Which brings us to the next point. Throughout the book of Proverbs, we're going to see a constant reference to the old people in people's lives, to parents and grandparents, to kings and leaders. Wisdom is for the leaders in life. Leaders from the very small uh, subsets of society, a leader in a particular home, even if that home is one person, a leader in a larger community, the, the elders of a church. This is why 
The New Testament doesn't ask us to do a litmus test of doctrine in the lives of our elders. We look at how they live. Do they have wisdom in their lives? In our wider communities, presidents, etc., Proverbs is going to talk a lot about the need for leaders to have wisdom. For we cannot raise up our children into wisdom if we don't have it ourselves. So the book of Proverbs is not just for the youth, but it is also for all of those who have any young person in their lives. Every grandfather and grandmother needs wisdom. How sad it is when a grandparent who ought to have learned a great deal of wisdom by living as long as they have imparts folly to the young people in their family. Aunts and uncles, you know that there are times that people, you know, those nieces and nephews will listen to you in a way they might not listen to their, old, their own parents. Sunday school teachers, elders, deacons, we all need wisdom. So while this book is for the youth, it is not only for the youth. And that actually brings us to verse 5. If you look there, you're going to see it says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. If you're thinking, sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I've lived long enough, I don't need the Proverbs, I don't need wisdom, then you have just proven yourself a great fool and desperate need of the wisdom of Proverbs. For one of the things that happens when you live longer is you begin to understand better how much you don't know and how much more you need instruction in wisdom. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands still needs to obtain guidance. If wisdom is for the young, it is also equally for those who have lived much longer. We all need the wisdom of God. The Proverbs are for the simple, they're for the young, but they are for the wise and they are for anyone who would be a leader, set an example, be in a place where others are going to see. What are the Proverbs' purposes? What are the purposes of the Proverbs? The Proverbs, their purpose is to impart wisdom, as I have already said. A point made at least five different ways in those seven introductory verses. So we need to talk a little bit about that word, wisdom. Now, one of the things that was hard, when I was teaching high school, I often said that one of the hardest things to do was never hard to teach a new concept. I shouldn't say never, but it was usually not that hard to teach a new concept. The hard part was unteaching misunderstanding. Getting students to jettison that wrong idea they've got and put in place the correct one. You see, a lot of us come to the word wisdom with too much baggage, too much abstract thinking about it, thinking that wisdom is this, this nebulous, undefined, abstract concept out there that, that one can only maybe aspire to sort of reach out to. But that's not a Hebrew, that's not a biblical understanding of wisdom. And in fact, if you break out the Hebrew Bible dictionary and you look up this word, in case you're curious, is chokmah. That's the Hebrew word here. If you break out chokmah, the first definition, interestingly enough, is not the word wisdom. The first definition is this. Uh, uh, Technical skill and aptitude. Technical skill and aptitude. That's how the word is usually used in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, it's the very first time we see this word chokmah. 
It's used in Exodus 28 of those who were called to prepare the tabernacle. The men who were called to carve the Ark of the Covenant and then plate it in gold. Those who were called to sew the garments for Aaron and his sons. They were said to have chokmah, wisdom, technical skill, aptitude, and ability. Now, many of you know that I fancy myself a DIY guy, a do-it-yourself-fur. So some years ago, I was installing some windows. My brother and I were actually working together to install a couple of windows. And our uncle, who is a lifelong carpenter, was there as well. And at the time it took my brother and I to install a window, our uncle by himself installed two windows and had time to come over and tell us what we had done wrong with the one that we installed. Wisdom. Technical skill. Aptitude. He had acquired an ability to do something well. Now you're saying, but he just, he just done it longer than you have. If you had done it as long as he had, you'd be as good as him. Well, that's wishful thinking. I don't know that that's true. But let's assume that it was. That's the point. That's the point. Wisdom is an acquired thing through living, through experience, and through learning. So we can wait. I could have said to my uncle, no, 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 don't teach me how to install a window. I just want to learn it on my own over time. You'd call me a fool, and you'd be right. The wise person knows they need instruction. Those who have lived longer, who have done things more, can teach us. Wisdom in the Bible is not an abstract concept. It is not a vague thing. It is technical skill, aptitude. The second definition, by the way, is the word experience. It's not until the third definition that you begin to get a a more Western idea of wisdom, and then it says worldly wisdom. It's the fourth definition before we get anything that seems spiritual. For it is a mistake to think that our secular lives are somehow different from our spiritual lives. We are one human being each, created by God to live all of this life to his glory for his purposes and ends. All of our life is to come under God's instruction. Chokmah is technical skill, aptitude, practical experience, hands-on ability to live life well. Now, that doesn't just come from carpentry. It can be applied to interpersonal relationships. It can be applied to how you manage. So the carpenter has a certain set of skills. The manager of carpenters has another set of skills. The administrator in the company has yet another set of skills. Whatever your calling is in life, whatever your place is in life, as parent, child, sibling, as a worker, as a boss, whatever your place is, there are certain skills necessary to do it well. That's chokmah. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. That's why this book is going to talk about a lot of very practical things. How to handle your money well. How to handle your marriage well. How to handle your children well. How to be a good employee. How to be a diligent person. How to live well with your neighbor. There's a lot of practical, hands-on knowledge in this 
book. So whether it's you know a building a building, or running a school, or or being a plumber, or a doctor, or a nurse, or whatever it is you do, there's a set of skills needed to live that well. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Bible is not merely about the uh, uh, re- uh, uh, the redemption story of Jesus, that there are other things in there. And we realize that if we, if we stop and think about this, that being reconciled to God in Christ is not actually the end or goal of our lives. It is only when we are reconciled to God in Christ that our true lives can resume again and begin. You see, Adam and Eve were created to make a world full of worshipers. But God only made two of them. They were to be about doing the rest of it. The goal of the world is not a return to the Garden of Eden, but to the New Jerusalem, a city. A city of culture and of engineering and of technology and of advancement in human ability. They were put in a garden and told to go do those things, to take dominion, to rule over. When we are restored to a right relationship with God, we've only just gotten back to the point of where Adam was before the fall. We still have that calling to rule over and take dominion. We still have that calling to raise up families. We still have that creation mandate to live these lives well. The gospel is not the end of our life. It's the beginning of our life. For we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And now the work that we were created to do can resume. It can begin again. Now granted, there's a new degree of complexity. There are thorns and thistles in that work that Adam and Eve would not have had. But nevertheless, there's work to do. God put man on this earth to work And when we are restored to a right relationship with him through the gospel, that work needs to resume and we need to do what we were called to do. Wisdom is the technical skill and the aptitude to live life that way. You see, there's a difference between wisdom and the moral law. There's a difference between wisdom and the gospel. You probably know Christians, authentic believers whose hope is in Christ and Christ alone, that never seem to have two pennies to rub together because they're terrible with money. You probably know genuine, authentic Christians who can't make a marriage work to save their lives. You know unbelievers who've got marriages that bury most of ours, who are better employees than we would ever hope to be, who are better at handling their money, who are wiser with the way they work with other people. There are unbelievers, there are total atheists out there when it comes to interpersonal tact would nearly rival Jesus himself. You see, we are called to know, uh, to, to come to God in Christ and to be his, but that's not where our calling ends. We need the wisdom to then live that life well. Proverbs means to give us 
that wisdom. It is for the young, it is for the simple, it is for the wise, it is for the learned, and it's meant to impart to us wisdom. The practical skill to live life well. So who is the author of Proverbs? Well, we saw there in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. That really is the heading for the entire book. Real quick reminder, Solomon, though he was not the oldest, he was the son of David who to whom David bequeathed the kingdom. And when he became king, he prayed for wisdom, and God bequeathed to him great wisdom, so that in 1 Kings 10 we read this. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. This was written by a guy who was really, really wise. And there's a lot we can learn here from him. But do you imagine that those meetings in Solomon's court were one-way meetings? That Solomon merely lectured and then people, the other people got up and left his court? That doesn't sound like a wise man to me. Solomon, being that wise, knew enough to also listen and to learn and to gain from those who visited him. Now, why do I point that out? Let's take a real quick tour. You're going to flip through your Bibles kind of quickly here. Real quick tour of the Proverbs. Proverbs 10.1. Proverbs 10.1. As I mentioned today, uh, uh, the 10th of July, chapter 10 is our first, uh, is our reading for today. It's really the first. Notice the heading there. Proverbs 10.1. The Proverbs of Solomon. And you're like, wait a second, we just saw in 1.1. 1.1 was the title for the whole book. 10.1 is now demarks, is a demarcation of the actual beginning of Proverbs. The first nine chapters are not technically Proverbs. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, flip forward to 25.1. Proverbs 25.1. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Now, in case you've forgotten, stick with me here real quickly. Here we go. Hezekiah was the great, 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 great grandson of Solomon. Great to the 11th power. 250 years, roughly, after the time of Solomon. So Hezekiah is led by God to say, hey, my great, 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 great granddad had a lot of wisdom, And some of it hasn't been put into that book he wrote. Let's add some more to it. So starting in in chapter 25 and following, Hezekiah directed his men to add more of the collected sayings of Solomon to the book of Proverbs. Okay, not that radical. Now look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1. Proverbs 30, verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob. Now, who is that? Look at 31.1. One more chapter. 31.1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So who are Agur, son of Jacob, and King Lemuel? Well, if you go through the list of all the kings of Israel and Judah, there is no King Lemuel there. And none of these three names, Lemuel, Agur, or Jacob, are Hebrew names. None of them are Jewish. And in fact, scholars are pretty much agreed they are Arabian names. Now, let me ask you, you may not know a lot about the world, but you know enough to answer this question. How well do Jews and Arabs get along? 
And yet we have the Proverbs, the wisdom of Arabians in the book of Proverbs. Now, flip back to verse to chapter 25. I'm sorry, 22. Go back to 22, 17. Go back to 22, 17. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Now, for centuries and centuries and centuries, scholars just assumed that this was an oblique reference to Solomon himself. But in 1938, archaeologists published a book that they had uncovered in the ruins of Egypt. That book is called The Instruction of a, 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 a Menemope. I, I knew I was going to pronounce that name correctly. The Instruction of a Menemope was published in 1938. And something interesting came to light. From Proverbs 22:17 through the end of that chapter, all of chapter 23 and most of chapter 24, all of it is found in the instruction of a metamope. These Proverbs of Solomon are the Proverbs of a metamope, an Egyptian. And now we know that Amenemope lived about 250 years before Solomon. He didn't borrow them from Solomon. Solomon took them from him. Why do I share that? You say, Pastor, you could have just said, by Solomon and a few other guys. The Proverbs are written by Solomon and a few other guys. Let's move on. But I want to point this out. That the wisdom of Solomon was to collect the best wisdom available in the world that the Hebrew scriptures include the wisdom of Egypt and Arabia. That even among the traditional enemies of the people of God, if wisdom was to be found, Solomon said, let's pay attention. Let's learn where we can learn. We live in a culture today that is so partisan. We are so obsessed with What's the source? Where did it come from? We don't care if it's true or not. We just care where it came from. I'm afraid that if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were ever to say the sky was blue, Donald Trump would look for a new way for Republicans to express blue skies. Because we can't possibly agree with something the other side said. That's folly. That's not wisdom. Wisdom, and by the way, we do this in doctrinal debates. We do this in, within the church. Well, you know, Pastor, that comes out of uh, John MacArthur's commentary. And a few years ago, John MacArthur, he's a Baptist. He went off on us Presbyterians. So we really can't stop. If truth is truth, if all truth is God's truth, then let's be open to the truth. Wisdom says I want to learn what is true. I want to live this life with skill and technical aptitude. I want to live this life with experience and knowledge. So, does that raise to the level of scripture the clever sayings of Mark Twain or poor Richard's almanac? Does Ben Franklin now get added to the scriptures? Drew just texted me. He's got some things he'd like to add to the book of Proverbs. So can we put that in there? How does this work? Well, for starters, we've got to recognize that 
much that passes for wisdom in the world is not wisdom at all. Much of Mark Twain's clever sayings don't actually help you live better. They might be entertaining. They might be an interesting reflection on the way things are, but there's really no help there in living a better life. Much that passes for wisdom in this world is not wisdom at all. It's folly. To sit cross-legged on the top of a mountain and to contemplate with an abstract look on your face, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That's not wisdom. That's foolishness. For that does not help us live this life well. And some people say, well, wait a second, Pastor. Those Buddhist monks, they live, by, they, they live with a lot of peace in their lives. They're not at conflict with people. You know, maybe that is a great way to live. It's a low-stress way to live. But it isn't doing what we were called to do. It isn't picking up the creation mandates that God gave us and building human culture in this world. It isn't creating worshipers of the one true God. It's a stress-free life because it's a life focused on self, not on God. Wisdom is actually living life well in the way that God ordained we should live it. And wisdom is knowing how to handle the stress that comes from that. So what about Ben Franklin? Well, there is some wisdom there, isn't there? A penny saved is a penny earned. That really is wise. But we don't put it in the scriptures. We learn from it, we incorporate it, we add it to the body of knowledge. But to help us sort through, we have divinely inspired wisdom that must become the filter for all other wisdom. The, the measuring stick against which all other wisdom is placed. The, the guide for knowing what really is wisdom and is not. We cannot, cannot, cannot just take everything we hear that sounds wise and live according to it. So our wisdom must begin here. We must know this wisdom well so that we can then judge what else is good wisdom and what else has value. The variety of authors in Proverbs reminds us that practical skill needed to live life well comes from a variety of sources. It comes from many different places. And that partisanship for its own sake is folly, not wisdom. The method, methodology of Proverbs, the Proverbs methodology. What is a proverb, properly speaking? I got a laugh when I looked up the definition. Here's the definition in the online dictionary for the word proverb. A short popular saying, usually of unknown or ancient origin, that expresses effectively some commonplace truth or useful thought. I thought to myself, that isn't short, it isn't memorable, and it's not particularly wise. The definition of proverb is not proverbial at all. So let me try a few proverbial definitions of proverb. A proverb is like a porcupine quill. It'll stick with you. What do you think of that one? Okay, I don't see a lot of takers for that one. Proverbs are the original scratch and sniff book. The more you pick at them, the richer the aroma. The better? Not loving that one, okay? Another proverbial definition of proverbs. Proverbs are the car keys of life. Forget them and you're going nowhere. Enough of my own pithy wisdom. Let's consider a few familiar proverbs as illustration. 
A bird may love a fish, but where would they build a home? It's a vivid, memorable picture of the challenges when disparate things are brought in union with each other. Um, If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. A lot of people want to take credit for cooking things, but the moment it goes wrong, they don't want to be blamed. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Genius is 2% inspiration and 98% perspiration. Good, vivid reminder of how important hard work is. Those are examples of Proverbs. Proverbs are short, memorable sayings that impart wisdom. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. A biblical proverb, a great picture of wisdom. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Moving lots of motion, not going anywhere. As a door turns on its hinges, so is a sluggard in his bed. The practical reality of the Proverbs, their pithy way to impart wisdom, is probably summed up most best in my mind in the the uh, well-known two Proverbs that sit back-to-back in chapter 26. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That's Proverbs 26.4. Answer not a fool according to his folly. The very next line. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. See, the Proverbs capture the reality of life. There are times to respond and times not to. There are times to take this issue up and times to let it go. And wisdom is figuring out which to do when and how to know how to let it go. So that in the wisdom of the Proverbs, we don't find absolute commands. We don't find guarantees and promises. To handle this book as a book of promises is to misunderstand it. But it is guidance on how to live well. Before we move on, a couple quick comments about the structure of the book. The first nine chapters that I already mentioned are kind of an introduction. It's, it's Solomon's extended uh, effort to get his own son to pay attention to this. This is important. What I'm about to teach you is a big deal. And then in chapter 10, the Proverbs begin properly, which is also going to help guide and help you understand the way the rest of the sermon series is going to go. I took seven verses today, and we're kind of going through how they speak to the Proverbs, but the rest of the time we're going to be preaching thematically. For if you read chapter 10 later this afternoon, you're going to see that almost every line jumps to some new topic. To try to preach straight through chapter 10, we'd be pulling out our hair, you'd be pulling out your hair, nobody would be learning anything. So we're going to take a thematic approach for the rest of the summer to the Proverbs. The Proverbs are for the young, they're for the simple, they're for the wise, they're for the experienced uh, learners, they're for leaders, they're for example setters. The Proverbs are meant to impart wisdom, practical expertise needed to live life well. The variety of the proverbial writers reminds us that good sound wisdom comes from a variety of sources, though it needs to be filtered through the inspired source. Proverbs, properly speaking, are bite-sized nuggets of wisdom in memorable form. And that brings us to the Proverbs motto. Verse 7. This is going to be said different ways throughout the book of Proverbs. 
But this is going to appear over and over and over again. We heard it in our reading of Job this morning. It was in our opening psalm this morning. Here we are in Proverbs 1.7. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We have a tendency in our culture to separate knowledge and wisdom as though they're two different things. In the Hebrew mind, you're going to see these were parallel. These are exactly synonymous terms. So in different places in Proverbs, we're going to read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, I said earlier that wisdom was not necessarily Christian. It was possible to live certain aspects of this life well without being a Christian. But let's be honest. If you have a wonderful marriage if you handle your job beautifully, if you are never in debt and your credit is perfect, if your house is always in good repair, your car is in good repair, your children are neat and tidy and cleaned up and doing what they're supposed to do, and in the end it all leads to hell, how great a life was that? How great a life was that? The first thing of knowledge, the most important part of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To come to him and say, you, Lord, are the one who created this world. You created me. You know how this is supposed to work. I need to listen to you. And the first thing he's going to tell you is you got to know Jesus. For there is no wisdom that's worth anything if you're still in your sin. If it's merely whitewash on the tomb, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, what good does that do you? So the wisdom that actually has eternal value begins by acknowledging the need for the restoration of a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And with that as the beginning, with that as the backdrop, we have the place to leap off and begin to live our lives well and to begin to function with expertise and skill and aptitude in other areas. You know, we often quote this, the, beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words... And treasure up uh, uh, my commandments with you. I'm sorry, I'm going to get the lighting better here. Um, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. You notice how at one point it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. At this point here it says basically wisdom is going to lead back around to the fear of the Lord. The two go hand in hand. They are part and parcel one with the other. The better you understand the redemption you have in Christ, the better you understand the need to live with wisdom. The better you desire to live with wisdom, the more you're going to see the struggles you have and you can't get there on your own. You see, one of the great blessings we have in Christ, we often remember that he lived out a sinless life for us. 
but he became the last Adam, the perfect human being. You see, while young Jesus may very well have sanded across the grain in his stepfather's carpentry shop, he learned. He learned skill. He learned aptitude. He grew in wisdom and in stature. And he eventually becomes the one who not only lives a sinless life, but who lives in this world perfectly. You and I have regrets. I wish I'd handled that situation differently. I don't, I don't think I sinned. I didn't lose my cool. I didn't say anything wrong. I don't think I sinned, but I wished I'd handled it with more wisdom. Jesus reached a point where he never even had those regrets. He attained the perfection of human existence. Not just a lack of sin, not just a lack of sin and complete obedience, but a lack of sin, complete obedience, and the fullness of wisdom, as we read in our New Testament reading. Being all that a human being is supposed to be. So as you strive for wisdom, you're going to struggle. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. And that's where the reminder that Jesus perfected humanity on your behalf becomes a great comfort in the struggle in this life. Jesus attained perfect wisdom for us. Jesus went through this struggle. It's the reason Hebrews talks about how we have a great high priest. This is a reason to pray. This is a reason to go to Jesus in the struggle of your relationship, in the struggle with your boss, in the struggle in your work, in your struggle against your own lack of wisdom. He went through all of this. He learned these things. He grew in these things. He wasn't created perfect in these regards, but acquired perfection. And so he is your comfort in the midst of this struggle. He is your strength in the midst of this struggle. He is the one who understands the trials you are having. So the pursuit of wisdom is not a pursuit of trying to please God from the outside, but rather to recognize what God has done and be pleased to then enjoy the life that's been given. Let's be a church that's marked by wisdom. Let's be households to whom our neighbors turn and go, there's just a wisdom there. Could you please talk to me about this? That in the midst of their trials, our coworkers come to us and say, there's something about you. And I'd like your advice on how to handle this situation. Think about the blessings if we lived wise lives. Lord, as we consider wisdom the rest of this summer, guide us in rightly understanding it. Lead us into achieving it by the work of your uh, hand in our lives. Let us be men, women, boys, and girls who live wise lives for the glory of Christ in whom we pray. Amen.